Autoimmune conditions are complex disease states where inflammatory and immune dysregulation overwhelm numerous regulatory systems. Their development and severity are often influenced by a legion of factors including genetics, immune dysregulation and infections, intestinal hyperpermeability, dysbiosis and toxicity, nutritional deficiencies and stress. Bioceuticals is proud to present the Reprogramming Autoimmunity Seminar Series in November 2016. The aim of this seminar is to delve deep into the known imbalances seen in autoimmune diseases and to learn the modern integrative treatments which can improve the health of patients suffering autoimmune-related illness. You will leave this seminar confident in assessing the complex imbalances seen in various autoimmune disorders, prescribing safe herbal and nutritional medicines to combat immune imbalances, and recommending effective nutritional and lifestyle interventions for the management of autoimmune disease symptoms. Your presenter, Belinda Reynolds, is a dietitian and senior educator for Bioceuticals who has shared her wealth of knowledge across Australia and New Zealand. Join Belinda at this half-day seminar throughout November 2016 to learn more about the evidence-based approaches for rebalancing immune dysregulation and how to enable your patients to enjoy a more fruitful life. Register now for this important education event at bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from Melbourne, Australia is Dr. Denise Furness, who conducted her PhD in Nutritional Genomics and Genome Health at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, that's the CSIRO. Everybody in Australia just calls it the CSIRO, a Department of Human Nutrition under the mentorship of Professor Michael Fennick. She's been involved in genetics and nutrition health research for over 12 years and was principal investigator in her postdoc study, Predicting Adverse Pregnancy Study, which is the PAPO study, at the Women and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. Her interests include the diagnosis and treatment of underlying triggers such as detoxification, inflammation, oxidative stress and methylation. Denise works closely with integrative practitioners in order to apply this knowledge and address the possible underlying issues associated with various health concerns, including fertility, gastrointestinal disorders, and mental health. And I warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you, Denise? I am well, thank you, Andrew. And I should have added into your bio, you are the loving wife of your husband and the loving mother of one child and one on the way. <laughs> yes, we have a little little boy who's just turned four and uh, one that's less than, that was probably about two months away. So, so yeah, counting down the days. Yeah, counting down the days. Now, you've got a heck of a lot of expertise in genetic sampling. Can you do me a favour? Can you do us a favour? Because you've done a lot in your very young life. Can you take our listeners through where you started? What was your initial interest in nutrition? And then take us through mm -hmm. your training and genetics, uh, training into genetics. So it started for me really in, in science. So I um, did my, my first degree, undergraduate degree, was in, in science, biological science. 
And then from there, I went on to do an honours project, and that was in conjunction with Deakin University, where I did my undergrad degree, and CSIRO, the Australian Animal Health Laboratories. And that particular project uh, for my honours was really around molecular biology and genetics. And then that led into a job with the CSIRO. And um, that was really a, a bit more sort of hardcore genetics. And I loved it at the time, um, but there was a lot of animal work. And to be honest, I didn't enjoy that. Um, even though I loved the experience, anyone that knows the Australian Animal Health Laboratory, CSIRO, it's a pretty amazing place to work. It's a fantastic facility, but um, and I love the genetics, but the animal work didn't get me. So I started looking around for a PhD and the advice I'd been given was make sure you love it because um, reality is you're going to be doing this for a while and you need to have that sort of passion and drive to complete a PhD. So I was thinking, well, how can I utilize my interest in genetics, my experience in genetics in an area that I think I want to be in sort of forever? And I learned about this particular field, nutritional genomics or nutrigenomics. Hmm. And I was quite excited about this sort of area of understanding genetic testing that can influence, you know, your diet or how certain, you know, n nutrition can impact on how well your gene functions and, and sort of health. So in, in myself, personally, um, I'd always, I guess, been quite passionate about health. I was into nutrition. I've always been an exerciser. So I sort of had that personal um, area of, of, of interest. Yeah. So I thought this would be a great way to combine my experience in genetics with sort of, I guess, my own personal interest. So I applied for a PhD at CSR Human Nutrition, and this was in Adelaide mm -hmm. um, under Professor Michael Fennick, who's known to be... I guess, the guru here the in guru. Australia with nutrigenomics. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I was very lucky to get a government scholarship, a CRC, Federal Government Scholarship, and I moved to Adelaide to do a PhD in his laboratory, and I was there for four years. And this particular project was in relation to um, nutritional genomics, so that interaction between the genes and the diet, particularly in relation to pregnancy outcomes. And then uh, from there, I was... Um, awarded a postdoctoral position with the University of Adelaide and the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. And then I went on to conduct the study that you mentioned um, at the beginning in the bio and and really continued that research from CSIRO but broadened it because initially it was really more about folate nutrigenomics and for those that have heard about MTHFR and, and B vitamins and methylation and sort of DNA damage, whereas when I went into my postdoctoral position, we then really expanded it to more than just um, that sort of B vitamin metabolism, that, that gene interaction around that pathway. We moved into vitamin D and inflammatory markers and oxidative stress and things like that. So, so that's really my training and expertise. Um, in that time, of course, anyone that's into this area would know that you're always studying. So I have done oh, yeah. some... Um, yeah, I, when I was on maternity leave last time, I thought, oh, I'll just do a do a degree in uh, you know human nutrition and exercise physiology, um, which I, I got to third year. I haven't totally uh, completed, but I also have a cert three and four in fitness, and have worked in the fitness industry, and I've done multiple certificates in nutritional medicine and and other courses like that. So there's been a lot of training, I guess, and working in the area for the last yeah fifteen possibly longer years. Mm, mm. I, I and got the last it. four years, I guess, I'm working in the clinic. So that, that has moved from, from research now to clinical practice. Right. 
I think when we're talking about these fields of genetics, you know, the genetic, genomic and nutrigenomic testing, and that's what we're going to be discussing today on FX Medicine, I need you to clear some things up for me because I've got to say I feel overwhelmed. <laughs> so I get very confused as to what is their uh, usefulness, what is their, what are they actually doing when they're testing each of these things. Can you clear up or differentiate for us and indeed me what is the difference between genetic testing, genomic testing, and nutrigenomic testing? All right. So, well, I think that's a fairly easy one, but hopefully I can communicate you, well. Maybe. So, genetic <laughs> for genetic testing, yeah, genetic testing really you're just testing the gene, something within that gene, perhaps a, a variation in the gene or the the copy numbers of that gene. So it's literally just about something to do with the gene. When we say genomic testing, we're thinking about the the genome. So not just one gene, we're thinking about all of the genes that would make up, say if it's a human, it's a human genome, or if it was um, a different animal or plant, the plant genome. So So the gene is we're just doing some testing in relation to one gene. The genome is that sort of complete set of genes, so you'll be doing some type of testing that can impact on on the genome or you're doing, like for example, if you talk about the Human Genome Project, they were trying to determine all of the genes. And then when we talk about nutrigenomic testing, this is really um, an area that is looking at genes that are linked with um, our nutrition and our lifestyle. So nutrigenomics is really discussing um, the science of the interaction between our genes and in particular diet, but also incorporating things like toxins and chemicals and things like that. So you're still just testing genes, but you want to know that the purpose of testing them or the reason you're doing it is because you want to know more about this interaction between the genes and the environment. And that's really based on research that's been done to tell us, for example, we know that MTHFR impacts on folate metabolism. So that sort of nutrigenomic testing, looking at that interaction between our genes and our nutrition or our lifestyle. And I will just make one comment. We say nutrigenomic testing, and that's probably the most common way of describing it. But often when we're talking about nutrigenomics, if you wanted to get really technical, we're often really talking about nutrigenetic testing because we're testing a gene, not the whole genome. But the, the common term is nutrigenomics, and the field is called nutrigenomics. So that is why you'll hear that more often. It's kind of, kind of like how people are talking about the microbiome when they really are referring to the microbiota. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But it still yes. confuses me because now we're going to be talking about SNPs. So what exactly yes. are we talking about when we're talking testing of SNPs? And is this genetic testing like that which is done for, say, you know, the original um, disease, the, the poster child, dare I call it that, the tragic disease called Huntington's chorea or Huntington's disease? Is that the same as testing for SNPs? First of all, I'll describe what SNP testing is. So SNP testing, SNP stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. It's a big word. The listeners don't really need to, to know what it stands for. All it means is that we're testing a gene, so it's a type of genetic testing, and we're looking for a single variation. So our genes are made up of our DNA, and our DNA is made of four bases or just four letters, and it's these letters in combination that make up our, our genes and our whole genome. So when we say a SNP, we're just talking about one change within one of those letters. It's a very you know small change within the gene. So that is SNP testing. 
when we talk about Huntington's Huntington disease, so basically that is genetic testing. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I'll say I don't test for diseases. The mm-hmm. type of genetic testing I do is I'm often looking at the SNPs, what, yep. what you were talking about, changes that might affect the function of a gene or how it interacts with a nutrient. So Huntington's, Huntington's disease basically is a gene test, but you're looking at, to my understanding, if I recall correctly, it's actually to do with um, and the number of repeats within that gene. So you're not looking at a SNP, you're looking at repeats because there are different within the gene. So it's still a genetic test, Mm. but we're not looking for one single base pair or one lesser difference. We're looking for a number of repeats. So there are different types of genetic testing in that some could be um, SNP testing, what I just described. We can also look at things like insertions, or deletions, or the number of repeats, or even copy numbers, so the amount of genes. So there are different forms of genetic testing. So I, I, I see now that you know orthodox medicine is very getting very interested in SNP testing when they're looking at how somebody will respond to a certain drug therapy. And you know the, I think the first one I ever heard about was how a patient might respond or not respond to the drug tamoxifen after having breast cancer. There are others. There are warfarin and things like that, but it's mainly the pharmacotherapy that they're trying to modulate to see if somebody will res- respond to a drug therapy, and therefore they call that personalised medicine. But that differs wildly from what we're talking about today, and that is nutrigenomic testing. So how a SNP and a nutrient or a diet interact. So mm. I got to ask: Is this a case of turf war, or are they wildly different? Are they really different? So the area when we're talking about the genes um, and sort of genetic testing that can influence um, possibly the benefits or side effects with drugs, that area is actually called pharmacogenomics, as right. I think you just mentioned. Yeah. But, so pharmacogenomics and nutrigenomics are different in the sense that pharmacogenomics is obviously relating to the gene-drug interaction, whereas our nutrient, um, sorry, our nutrigenomics is talking about that more sort of nutrition lifestyle interaction with the genes. So I don't think um, it's much of a a turf war. I would like to think that myself as a scientist or allied health practitioners really work with the doctors. So the way that I practice, actually, I work in a medical practice with four GPs and we really all work together and they often get me to sort of interpret the the, the genetics, and we we really often, um, I guess, refer back and forward to sort of get those optimal cases or optimal outcomes for the patient. However, in the sense of the pharmacogenomics really being related to drugs, it's more likely that this information is going to be delivered or should be delivered from a medical practitioner or a specialist um, such as a um, psychiatrist because we know a lot of these um, genes also impact on the success of a lot of the mental health medications as well. So in that case, I think we will see that this kind of testing, pharmacogenomics, is more going to come from the medical doctors and the specialists because they're the ones that are advising the drugs. And in the case of myself being a scientist and also a registered nutritionist, I'm not going to prescribe certain drugs. However, I can still talk about those genes with the patient, but you definitely don't want to be working with the doctor. Right. So to me, that does seem like a case of, dare I say, I mean, that's a bit of a 
flippant term to say turf war. It's more of a paradigm of, of practice. Drugs, uh, yes. sorry, doctors prescribe drugs and so therefore pharmacogenomics, which should, when you say the word, should really be pharmacogenetics. Um, yes, versus, you're learning. That's versus, <laughs> versus somebody who is more into, you know, we say the word as a, as a broad brush saying natural medicine, um, talking about yes. nutrigenomics because they're dealing more with health and diet rather than disease states. Yeah, and I think generally that that is right. Um, obviously, the doctors I work with are integrative GPs, so they're a little different. They have um, a strong interest in nutritional medicine and lifestyle medicine, so they also do a lot of um, nutritional genomic testing. But I would say majority of doctors um, that don't have the time um, to sort of or, or the passion to sort of get into the nutrition, they're they're really the ones that are going to be doing the pharmacogenomic testing, and it's the other practitioners that are mainly focused in nutrition and lifestyle that would do that nutrigenomic testing. Yeah. Can you take our listeners through what it means to have a polymorphism of a particular SNP? Polymorphism. There seems to be a, this whole school of thought that, you know, what it means when you go on to develop certain disease states as opposed to professional advice you can give to listeners on interpretation and understanding of certain results when you are when you are you know shown to have a particular snip what does it mean if you have a, a certain snip so just reiterating what i mentioned before a snip is a um a single base pair change so it's it's a change within the gene and we often call this a polymorphism so poly meaning many and morphies are different so just sort of showing that there can be a difference in this base pair. Yeah. So what happens when you identify a SNP? And I will just mention that not all SNPs or genetic variations cause um, a functional effect or associated with disease. Some SNPs actually you will still get a normal protein or an enzyme being formed. But we know now um, that many, many SNPs, and this is based on on medical research, clinical trials, genome-wide studies, we know that many SNPs actually can impact on how well um, the protein or the enzyme or the receptor, whatever's being coded by that gene, how well that functions. And then this may um, impact on the person's health. What we cannot say is that if someone has, and I'll use MTHFR again simply because it's it's a common one and we've been doing research on it for 20 years, a lot of people sort of know about it, Mm But if someone does have a genetic variation in MTHFR, this does not mean that you are going to, or this is the cause of your fertility issues, or that you're going to have a mental health problem, or you're going to get cardiovascular disease. All it means is that you don't metabolize folate as well, and this could be one of those underlying factors linked with whatever the the person's um, issue may be, Um, along with we'd be looking at a number of other markers as well. So a number of genes, looking at the nutrient levels, you know, looking looking at a number of things. So the gen- genetics is an important tool. I believe it's an important tool as part of that total holistic approach. So you can't say that if someone has a SNP, they're going to develop a disease. But what we can do is educate them about how well their body is, is working or how well their body um processes something like folate that has been linked with, say, pregnancy disorders. Mm. And then from that information, we can educate the patient again on what might be the best diet. Okay, you might need more folate. Let's talk about your leafy greens. How many serves of vegetables are you getting a day? If they've got certain um, other genes, maybe they're not metabolizing 
a certain folate well. Let's talk about introducing a different form of folate. So, so it's not necessarily directly to disease, but more about things that can relate to to adverse health outcomes. Yeah, I think when you're talking about, you know, we always use that poster child of of MTHFR. Um, <clears throat> so that's the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Um, well done. Yeah, <laughs> I have a memory. Um, when we're talking about that, let's take that as a snapshot and let's go mm-hmm. back in time to before folate supplementation, mandatory um, fortification in, in foods, in breads in Australia. So if we went back to that time where if we look at the prevalence of the various SNPs, and there are a range, we'll talk about that later. In, indeed, we might talk about that in a separate podcast. But when we're talking about these SNPs regarding or um, referring to folate metabolism, if you wanted to take that snapshot of you've got a certain prevalence of these SNPs in the in the population, certain ones will work well, certain ones mediocre, certain ones poorly. If you then look at health outcomes of that group, regardless of any supplementation, this is before food fortification, then you can then say, even if you had that gene SNP, most people, many pregnant ladies didn't have an issue with their baby. So therefore, they were having enough of the natural folate to be able to allow that gene to function properly. But those people who had the SNP, they are at increased risk. And perhaps these are the ones that ended up with a baby with a neural tube um, crest defect or a cleft palate. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that the right thinking? Yes. Um, so, so you are right. There are many people in the population that would because for example, the MTHFR, you know, 677 that we're talking about and 1298, these are very common um, polymorphisms or genetic variations. And there are many people that have um, that, that had babies before the mandatory fortification of folate and had healthy um, outcomes. However, it is important to note that it's likely that um, they were taking a prenatal that had folate and other B vitamins because we do know that those with the MTHFR gene are at much higher risk for neural tube defects and congenital abnormalities. So that's been shown in a number of populations. But you are completely right when you were talking about the diet. In those that actually are eating a real food diet, because folate's found in lots of foods, green leafy vegetables, legumes, particularly lentils, um, fruits, nuts. So if someone's eating um, a, a good diet full of real food, um, it's likely they're getting enough folate. Mm. The issue is that in our day and age, most of us um, are not eating enough of the vegetables and the real food because we are busy, we're on the run, we're time poor, everything's packaged and processed and quick and easy. And a lot of these sort of nutrients um, are much lower than what would have been in our, in our real food. So so those that are eating um, the healthy foods, as you said, like the green leafy vegetables, are likely that they didn't have the complications. Um so you're exactly right, that's, and that's really that whole area of nutritional genomics, talking about the interaction between the genes and the nutrition. So when you, just talk, get referring back to your PAPO study, the Predicting Adverse Pregnancy mm. Study, did that study look at poten- potentially those people that had poor diet, were they at increased risk of, say, MTHFR issues like cleft palate? Yeah, so our study, um, we were working with two populations. One was at the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide, which is um, a relatively, um, I guess, sort of 
I wouldn't say affluent suburb, but you know, it's 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 a good suburb. Um, it's in North North Adelaide. It's still a public hospital though, so you're getting a wide range of patients. But we also recruited um, another large study I was involved in. I wasn't the primary investigator, but was involved in something called the Scope Study. Um, the screening of pregnancy endpoints. This is a very, very large study conducted in Adelaide and New Zealand and around the world. We all got together and I think we recruited about 1,600 women and that was from a hospital um, called the Lyle McEwen and that is in a lower socioeconomic area and we saw a lot more complications, um, pregnancy complications in this particular population. And that is because obviously diet was poorer, but there was even things, even even women are still smoking. There's a lot of younger um, women getting pregnant. Um, and, you know, we definitely saw a much higher um, frequency of, of particular um, pregnancy complications in that population. And we also saw more of those sort of interaction with the genes um, because one of the things with genetics, and sometimes it's not as clear as we think it is, is because we don't often see the same results repeated in multiple studies. So we might do a study and say, oh, we've definitely seen a strong association here. But because these genes are involved in that interaction between the environment, you then go and repeat the study in a different population mm. who are living a different lifestyle, mm. particularly a different country. So yeah. Some of our work we repeated in New Zealand um, that we were fairly certain of particular genes, but we didn't see the same things in the New Zealand population. And that's because when we looked at um, the ethnicity, there was the particular hospital, there was a lot of Maoris too, so it's a different ethnicity. Yep. So we're not seeing the same frequency of the genes. Plus, plus their lifestyle is completely different. And this is one of the issues. I mean, you could you could transpose that exact same argument onto work with probiotics. If you're feeding these bugs with a certain food, and just likewise, if you're feeding genes with certain foods, then if you're talking about a certain gene snip having a prevalence for a certain disorder in, let's say, I've seen this pop up heaps of times, the Han Han Chinese population. Well, that may mm. well be a Han Chinese population in China, not a Han Chinese population in Seattle. You know, mm. you know what I mean. Yes. And where they've got a different dietary influence. Um, and just on my own personal experience, sort of getting back to MTHFR too. Even though I have no doubt in um, the significant effect of that genetic variation, because we also did when I started um, at CSRO, we did a lot of cell culture work. So we were actually sort of looking at you know, these genes and you're adding amounts of folate and B12 and, and DNA damage and, and the effect of MTHFR and things. So we know that that with that particular SNP or variation, the enzyme um, activity really is significantly reduced, mm. that these that, that you're going to get more DNA damage, you're going to get all these kind of things, particularly when in the particular cell culture, when we're talking about the media, if it was that had low folate and sort of B vitamins and things in, in this sort of, I guess, scientific way that we were doing it, sort of mimicking what would be going on in the body. But then when um when we're talking about the PAPO study, the women's and children's, I actually didn't see an association. To be honest, I was almost a bit disappointed um, because of the you know what's known with MTHFR, but in my pregnant population. But then when we discussed it with my um, you know, colleagues, it actually made perfect sense because our women were all on prenatal supplements. Right. And some of them because of our, I guess, our school of thought, and at the time, um, my supervisor, Professor Gus Decker, who was sort of the head of maternal fetal medicine at one of the hospitals, and the other wonderful obstetrician I worked with, Dr. D. McCormick, um, you know, we were very passionate about B vitamins. They knew about the genes. People that do research in this area have a, a good understanding. So, 
you know, these these doctors are informing these patients that, you know, okay, we know you've got these SNPs. It's probably better that you be on, say, a higher dose of folate. So actually, our our study was actually a little bit um, sort of biased in the sense that majority of our women were probably on even higher doses of B vitamins than what a standard, you know, a woman outside of our study would have been on. So we didn't see the association with MTHFR, but our women were on high-dose B vitamins. So we probably hid that effect. Yeah. Did you see a reverse association? Did you see? Um, we actually had, we had, we had, we had good, so particularly in the recurrent miscarriage clinic, yep. we had good outcomes. Yeah. So we had improved, we had improved outcomes, which is what, what you would hope. Um, but some of the things from a research perspective, you want to see certain associations. Um, and we didn't see those because I guess we were sort of treating and, and the research was slightly biased because we all believed in the, in the power of bees for particularly those that had, and I'll also say it wasn't just MTHFR. We were looking at methionine synthase, methionine synthase reductase, you know, MTHFD1, a whole host of genes within that um, methylation pathway. And mm. if patients had those, we would then sort of talk to them and say, okay, you're likely to need some more Bs. Um, you know, B6, B12, folate was one of the main ones we would talk about. So, so um, it's an unintentional intervention trial. <laughs> Yes, yes. We actually wanted to have a randomised control trial, but we couldn't get through things through ethics. Gotcha. Um, because, you know, you're not going to tell any pregnant woman that's not to have folate. Not to have so folate. We gonna, that's right, yeah. We were going to do folate versus um, a B complex, um, but actually one of the obstetricians that I that I mentioned, B said she worked, she was the main uh, obstetrician in the recurrent miscarriage clinic. Even though we were going to try to sort of do randomised and blind, mm. um, she just said, she said, I don't know if I want to be, when I believe that the, yeah, exactly, yeah. The, the complex is going to help, I'm not sure. So, you know, it really is quite hard for a researcher as well, particularly when we do care about pe- patient outcomes mm. as well. So, so, so the only yeah, way to so, really look at that would be to do a prospective trial, wouldn't it? Yes. And then you're outside yes. the ethics of having to supplement. Yes, exactly. And I guess what would be, you know, you know, even more interesting is looking at sort of in populations where perhaps people aren't um, supplementing with folic acid too and then mm. looking at the difference between sort of the influence of the genes there. So it is difficult now, particularly in the world of sort of pregnancy with doing the research around something like MTHFR because of that huge sort of public health message with, with folate and we know that it does protect against neural tube defects. So, well, Talking about ethics, what is the ethical line of what we as nutritional or natural practitioners can say with genomic testing and what is a tall claim? Because, you know, I've heard in the news, you hear these people overseas getting lambasted for their claims and you get a lot of orthodox medical practitioners burring up hugely about the use of genetic genomic testing um, and, you know, they say it should only be, you know, used for this for basically drug stuff. That, to me, is mm. where the turf war term comes in. I just think they're not looking far enough. But what is the ethical line of what we can and can't say? So for me, as a scientist who's worked in the area for so long um, and has not only read sort of so many papers but has been involved in publishing papers and um, really been, I guess, you know, heavily involved in nutrigenomic research, I find that I'm very comfortable talking about the genetics. It is when you talk about an ethical line as someone who's a registered nutritionist, even and I'm a geneticist, so I do work uh, in clinical practice now in a private practice. Yeah. Um, it 
it's it's a hard line because even when you're talking about things for the practitioners out there, even getting insurance, I write down that I do nutritional genomics, I do genomic testing, and they don't know what to do with that. It's a pretty new area. Yeah. But I think it's you can be feel quite confident and safe when you are delivering information that is based on hard evidence and science. So it's not about saying, okay, because there are a whole host of, um, for example, if I can mention names, something like 23andMe, which is in the US, that just, you know, test a whole heap of genes and a whole heap of SNPs. A lot of those are not based on hard science. Right. And that's when we start to get into some of these sort of confusing areas because people are, tr- are making assumptions because we might know that, okay, this gene is really, this gene's involved in inflammation or this gene's involved in detoxification. But even if the gene is involved in detoxification, and you have found a genetic variation through, say, perhaps a company like 23andMe or someone else that just sort of does a lot of genetic testing that isn't necessarily based on sort of candid or chosen genes from based on research. People can get confused and say, well, or, or they believe that because this gene's involved in a particular pathway and you've got genetic variations that there's instantly some issue, that, that an issue with the gene, or they might say, well, if you've got problems with detoxification, toxins are linked with cancer and they might start to sort of make claims that aren't really valid or based on medical research. So that's where it gets confusing and that's where sadly I think people, um, the whole validity and and reputation of um, genetic testing can start to come apart. So the practitioner really needs to be cautious of the type of company that you use. You want to know that um, I obviously don't have a lab anymore um, so I, I, you know, I use genetic testing companies, and you need to make sure that it is based on, you know, good evidence. Yeah. Um, as particularly if you get Australian companies, they should be um, passed through TGA and all the regulatory boards and, and things like that. So, if you are using a company that is based on research, and you wouldn't have to be an expert in genetics, um, you know, I don't, I don't want people to think they need to go out and do fifteen years like I've done to be an expert, but just being able to look at a couple of papers or, or using a company that you know is based on research and doing most of the companies too here in Australia, well, I should say all the ones that um, I think are approved by TGA and do things properly require some kind of um, training before you're allowed to do the genetic testing. So by doing that genetic testing training um, and and using a company that uses um, genes and, and, and tests SNPs or, or variations that are based on hard evidence, then you're not going to get into those particular um, issues where you're possibly making false claims. Yeah. I, I, leading on from there, I have to ask, and, and you can talk about this as being either the big brother question or the conspiracy theory question, because you'll get some, some people raising their hackle saying, well, hang on, I, if you've got a laboratory taking that test, by law, they have to r- hold that test for a certain period of time. And mm. the reason is because of legal issues, if there was a, an issue with the test that showed up later, you know, maybe, for instance, we've heard of issues with pap smear tests in the past in Australia, that they were misread and not done properly. Um, it's happened a multitude of times. So mm. for ethically, they have to hold on to that sample for a certain period of time. The, the conspiracy theorist, or, you know, they might have been watching too many X-Files or whatever, they might say, oh, they're going to use that for to give the, you know, the to give them, 
quote unquote, my mm. gene information and they'll be able to track me and all of that sort of thing. Now, <laughs> I don't propose that, but there are ethical considerations um, with regards to making money off genes. And this has happened with regards to the immortal ovarian cancer cells from a lady called Henrietta Lacks, who died, I think it was late 40s or something, 50s, from um, ovarian cancer. And today they use the HeLa, H-E-L-A, mm. ovarian cancer yeah. cells. They've recently won the, um, not recently now, it's probably three years old, they've won the um, the court case to say that that's her uh, intellectual property, if you like. So their family, Absolutely. basically, yeah. So mm. it, it's a storm of controversy. What are the legal requirements in Australia around storage of samples and use mm. of gene somebody's genetic material? Definitely, I'm not surprised that, you know, when you talk about this case being won, because there's no way in this day and age that that could be done, particularly here in Australia. No. So, um so when we were doing our research studies and we wanted to test certain genes, you know, all of this stuff has to go through ethics committees. So you submit the project or even if you're a commercial company, you know, you would still have to go through the, the, the right um, type of um, process and this would you have to sort of have these things accepted. And, and they go through this with a fine-tooth comb and then you would have to um, come up with a consent form when they've decided that what you want to do is appropriate mm -hmm. um, or ethical or legal. Then there's consent forms because with genetics, um, you you need to have informed consent about what is going to be done with your DNA. Yeah. So if you are going to, for example, be involved in a research study, we would have a consent form that already would have been through ethics a number of times, depending on um, what, what they pick up from it. And then you would have this and you would give it to the patient and you would describe what you're going to do with their, with their blood um, and what you're going to test for. You can um, keep the sample. So this is from a research sense before I talk about a commercial sense. So yeah. from a research sense, you could you could keep the sample because perhaps it's going to, to fail um, or, you know, you might need to repeat it, but you could not use it for anything else other than that particular research study unless it was passed by ethics, um, unless you had a sort of a tick box or, or something where they could sign to say, I agree. Yeah, you need to a my new consent. Sample yeah. being exactly. So you need to consent to anything that's going to be done, and that is, that's a legal requirement here in Australia. From a commercial perspective, I have never had a commercial lab, but my understanding is, and, and, and I do use co companies now, and I have to give my patients a consent form, mm -hmm. so I see that it's the same. So if I'm doing genetic testing, they have to sign, but again, there is actually something on the consent form that says, do you consent to your data being used for research? So yes, you're, you're, um, you're consenting to you understand there's going to be genetic testing, but then certain companies that do genetic testing will ask you, do you mind if we keep it to use it for research? And then the patient or the client can can agree or not agree. Yeah. And it's interesting when you sort of talk about these, uh, you know, examples of people wondering what the hell are you going to do with their genes? People do. So even when, even from a research perspective, 
particularly males, I'm not sure why, um, more so maybe not with the blood DNA, but I was obviously working in fertility where we would also collect semen samples and things like that too and we'd talk about, you know, stuff like that and the men particularly sometimes are like, what are you going to do with this? Are you like, <laughs> going to grow Are you going to grow a little me? Yeah. Are you going to do something? So, you know, people are genuinely concerned. Yeah. So you need, to, you, need, you need to understand what is going to be tested um, and and be able to, you know, educate and inform that person um, in simple terms and get them to sign a consent. And nothing can be done with the sample unless there is consent. So in this case, I think, you know, the example you gave where they were using the um, healer cells that have been used, you know, in labs all around the world for, for science, I, I, my understanding would be probably because it was back in the 1940s, um, things were a little bit different. But now... Um, that would be very, very much illegal, mm. and things like that should not be happening. I don't, I can't talk about in other countries where sometimes things can be a bit debatable, but here in Australia, these things are very much um, regulated um, and monitored. Um, so, so yeah, but it's important for the patient, anyone that is or the client too, if they are worried about this, they ask those kind of questions as well. So, I've got to ask then, what is the true value of? nutrigenetic testing. What can these tests tell us that without them you won't get the information for and you might be misled? So I guess the power in the nutrigenetic testing, for me, there are some multiple points that I, I, I think I'll bring up to answer that. But the first thing that's coming to my mind is I'm just thinking about a patient I had yesterday. So um, a lot of that, a lot of it is answering the why. So, so for those that aren't coming to you just for optimal health, who are interested in their genes, they've actually got something wrong that perhaps um, mainstream medicine hasn't been able to fix, or um, they've sort of got chronic conditions, and they want to understand why or what they can do. Sometimes the genetics really does help people understand because this is a quite yeah. an important thing. Uh, yeah. Yesterday, I was working with a very intelligent lady who has struggled with her weight for a very long time. Um, and, you know, for example, she had a whole host of genetic variations with inflammatory genes that are predisposing her to be um, to chronic inflammation and having a sort of an exacerbated immune response. Plus, she had a whole host of genes in relation to fat metabolism and insulin, glucose, et cetera. So she is at risk of, you know, being more inflammatory, which we know that links with, with weight gain as well. Plus, she sort of had all these these other things in the fat metabolism gene. So she had come to see me after sort of 15 years of trying every single diet under the sun. Um, she didn't have a weight uh, problem initially, but what had happened is she actually had a car, a very, very serious car accident and never really recovered fully. And I think that's probably what triggered her, possibly the inflammation, because now she also has pain in her joints and all these sort of kind of inflammatory things going on. She's got an autoimmune condition as well. But... Um, she had this accident, never fully recovered, tried sort of put on weight because she was sedentary for quite a while. She's in pain. And when she got a bit better, she tried to exercise, but always continually had back problems. And sadly, it sort of had this, this sort of up and down with her weight and tried every diet. So I spoke to her yesterday and I couldn't give her the magic ingredient and appeal and say, this is going to fix it all. This is a supplement you need. But by educating her on the importance of not pushing herself too hard because um, the inflammation was of concern. And I will also add the genetics is not something I do stand alone. We also knew she had high CRP, which is a marker of inflammation and, and things like that, et cetera. But 
I was able to explain to her that genetically she is at risk of these things and that she is predisposed and because of some of these lifestyle things inter- interacting with her, her genes, this is why she's really struggling to lose the weight. Mm. And what she had been trying to do was go you know, with a personal trainer who'd been literally pushing her to the max and smashing her and then she'd get sick and be out for a month or two and then she'd go back and train really hard. And So to her, this is not the kind what you want to do. You need to be thinking low impact, you know, small steps, be aware, one of some of the genetic variations I were looking at to do with leptin, I said, be aware that you do want to eat more than um than you probably need to. Just educating her about that. And and, and if anything, I, I think what this does, it empowers people. So she just said she hadn't felt good about this whole situation for a long time because no one, people, she thought people thought she was a liar mm. because she really had at times been quite good with her diet. It mm. went up and down, but she said, people just think I'm a liar. They think I'm in the cupboard hiding, mm. just stuffing my face. And I said to her, well, I believe that you're not. Um, I said, it is, it is important what you're eating and you wouldn't have put on, you know, you wouldn't, she wasn't obese, but she's overweight. I said, you wouldn't be overweight if, you know, you weren't putting certain things into your mouth, but you are, you know, you do have to try harder than others. So I was able to educate her, empower her, give her some strategies to sort of help compensate for, for some of those genes. So I would say the power is in really sort of helping people understand. Again, when we talk about MTHFR, we want to talk to people particularly with fertility and folate, um, things with detoxification. Some people are more sensitive. Some people will put creams on their skin and react and don't know why. Yeah. So if we can talk to them and say, listen, you're, you don't have the ability to break down certain chemicals and toxins so you that's need going to, to make more you more sensitive about, yeah. then they go oh my goodness so there's not something it's not in my head there's actually something genetic going on here and i can i can work with this i now know that i'm likely to be more sensitive to this this and this i'm going to have to avoid these things in the environment so for example if someone's got genetic variations in the cytochrome p451b1 and 101 1a2 things like that we know these are involved in breaking down things like, you know, car exhaust fumes. So if that person lives right near a freeway, we can say to them, "This no wonder you're getting these particular health issues and we can see you've got high benzene. You're not breaking down the benzene because, one, you're exposed to high amounts being near a freeway, but you can't tolerate as well as perhaps your neighbour because yeah. of these genes. Yeah. So it's really about educating them, um, empowering them, and it, it's not a quick fix and it's not a standalone test. It's something you do in or alongside other testing. So mm. when I do a lot of sort of nutrient um, treatments, you know, talking to people about diet and possibly supplements, but I would never base that just on the genes. We'll talk about, for example, vitamin D is a good one. They might have genes that mean they don't sort of process and activate vitamin D as well. Perhaps they've got changes in the vitamin D receptor, so they're not using vitamin D as well. In those cases, I'll talk to the person about the importance of making sure their vitamin D levels are up at a higher, a higher sort of range. Yeah. But before telling them to take vitamin D, I'd also get their vitamin D measured. Yeah. So yeah. you mentioned, you know, is, what is the point of doing genetic testing? You know, can, can you find out this information without it? So, for example, you could possibly say to someone, well, you're low in vitamin D. You need vitamin D, but if you've but got the power work? of genetics yeah. and say, 
your vitamin D actually might be borderline normal. But when we look at your genes and you say you've got genetic variations in the vitamin D receptor and we know that you've got issues with inflammation and we know that vitamin D can protect against chronic inflammation, we then might make that judgment by putting all of these things together along with the patient's symptoms and say, well, I'm very confident that you need more vitamin D. So it's really trying to get to that personalized medicine, what yeah. that particular individual needs. Mm. It's such a like it's it's obviously a huge area, and I think it's it's a it's a it is a complex area, and it really needs understanding. And I've got to say, Doctor Denise Finesse, you are the perfect person to explain that complex understanding in in <laughs> in easily I, I understandable tried. terms. Well, no, you do a really good job. And so, I got to say, would you mind if we continue this on other podcasts because there's so much to go into, and it's just it, you know I could talk to you for like three hours right now. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't no, think our I listeners think, would appreciate it. <laughs> I think doing chunks will be good too because I'm not sure if you get listener feedback that maybe we can, you know, get topics and things that people want to know more about and, Love to. and focus on those and um and I'm definitely happy to do more mm. and um and try to, to flesh a little bit of this out. And for practitioners who are wanting to introduce this into the clinic, I think these are the kind of podcasts that are good to help give them the confidence of why why these um, these tools and genetic testing is of benefit, um, how to communicate it with patients and, um, yeah, just learning more about an area that I think is obviously awesome. Brilliant. So, <laughs> so, so how about in our next podcast, I'll set this up for our listeners, um, we delve into the MTHFR um, SNPs because it's something that's common, commonly known, mm. but I also think that sometimes it's mistreated and potentially overtreated in certain individuals. So I'd love to go into the um, the whys and wherefores and, and responsible treatment of that. Those Absolutely. I think that would be very um, important to go through that because I will say that that brings me a lot of business from patients that have come from other practitioners that have been told certain things about MTHFR that may not be as accurate as it could be. So I think Great. that's a really important topic to cover. Denise, thank you so much for taking us through uh, genetics, or I should say Nutrigenetic Testing 101 today. Thank you so much. I will hear from you very soon. You will. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Bioceutical Seminar Series, Reprogramming Autoimmunity. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter.